and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined as always by Miles Danhausen. How's it going, Miles? It's going good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I got outside a little bit today. It was a little chilly, but the sun was out, and uh, I have some good news to share. I went to Piggly Wiggly this morning to pick up some groceries, and everybody was wearing a mask. Awesome. A lot of Everybody. compliance in Northern Door. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. All of the employees, of course, were wearing masks and gloves. Uh, I'm sure that they adopted that pretty early on up here. Uh, you've been in contact with the pig quite a bit since this started, talking about kind of their story. But also, every single customer that I saw walking around was wearing a mask as well. So that was great to see. And it's good to see that the people up here have been able to either get a hold of masks or make their own. Uh, and they've been able to keep themselves safe in that way. Yeah, that's excellent to hear. And it, it kind of coincides with the, there was an interesting story today about like six feet of separation is the, the distance that will stop a lot of the largest droplets. But um, there are some smaller droplets that when people talk that the smaller, lighter ones could actually go even farther than that and potentially um, spread the virus. So mm-hmm. the masks seem like they might be pretty handy for this. Yeah. We have a couple things to talk about today. We'll go over the election results that have finally come in. Gibraltar has decided to close the school building for the rest of the academic year. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And then finally, the developers of the Quarry RV Park have appealed the decision. So uh, it looks like that is back on the docket moving forward. Uh, But why don't we jump in with the election results? So they finally came in yesterday. I took a look through Miles, but as always, uh, I look forward to hearing you explain them to me. Tell me a little bit about the election results. Uh, well, obviously, on a statewide level, as most people would probably know by now, Jill Karofsky defeated the incumbent Daniel Kelly, which in a normal year, that might have been expected, um, given that it was a contested Democratic primary, usually would bring out more voters. So you just naturally have more Democratic voters out and not quite the same motivation of Republican voters. So you would think Karofsky being the more liberal candidate that she would have won. A lot of the things that happened with the election at the last second made a lot of people think that the election was much more in doubt, but she won handily. So that's a statewide level. And she also won the Door County tally. But then locally, a couple of big things. Sturgeon Bay High School's referendum passed overwhelmingly, 66% mm-hmm. of the vote. That meshes well with what we saw, and we've discussed this a lot, Andrew, of the referendums for facilities at Gibraltar, Southern Door, and Sevastopol. This was another large one at $16.8 million for right. Sturgeon Bay schools. So I had my, when they first started talking about it, I had my doubts just because the tax impact in Sturgeon Bay hits people harder than it does in some of the other outlying areas. But yeah, that that Door County support for educational referendums just continues to be resoundingly strong. Yeah, um, it's, it's always awesome to see that the county is looking to reinvest in education. Then you had um, at the county board level, there were five contested races. Incumbents suffered a little bit this year. There were three of those five Four were won by women. Three were won by women who defeated incumbent county board seats. So there's going to be more female representation on the county board and more new blood on the county board. Yeah, that's what I took away from looking at the results at first, too, was just the amount of women on the ballot, number one. But the amount of women who won, too, was really cool to see. Right. And then you had in one of those, uh, Randy Halstead, who has been the uh, one of the supervisors for a a while now, lost by just one vote to Elizabeth Gouger, who is a, a supervisor for the town 
township of Egg Harbor. Um, now it's going to be a Door County Board supervisor. But when you talk about does my vote matter, it's easy to look at the national politics and say your vote does not matter <laughs> in the grand scheme of millions upon millions. But at a local level, when you're talking municipal boards, Randy Halstead loses by one vote. Pretty right. Remarkable. And then uh, you had a little bit changeover in other races. You can go down and see all of the election results at doorcountypulse.com by clicking on the election tab. And then the results are all right there, including the, the vote totals. But I think those were the main takeaways, unless I'm missing something. But those are the big ones that, that stuck out to me from yesterday's results. Right. So yesterday after we finished recording the podcast, we had a little bit of a chat about education and how... You know, we've talked about it before, too, about how the high-speed internet situation up here is not awesome. So just wondering how schools have been handling remote learning and, and how long it was going to last, if schools were going to decide to shut down or not, what was going to happen. Uh, we had that conversation yesterday after the podcast, and then last night, uh, Gibraltar announced that they were going to close the school building for the rest of the academic year. Now, does that mean that classes are now over as well, or are they going to continue remote learning through the rest of the year? They will continue remote le learning. To be clear on that, they are closing the building, but not closing school, if that makes a little more sense. So right. they will continue the remote learning that they've been doing. And the school board members I talk to, and I think any teacher you talk to would tell you that like remote learning is not the equivalent of school learning. So one of the things that I think boards are going to be struggling to figure out um, because it's a, not struggling because they're not equipped, but struggling because it's a really difficult question to, to answer I, is what what are the new merits for students to meet, to matriculate to the next grade level, to graduate even? I know the state is, is looking at doing waivers for certain things. There are certain test requirements that might, might be changed. It's in all of this mess related to COVID-19, I would say schools probably have the, as hard as it is for business owners and, and everybody else, schools probably have the most complicated problems to solve of anyone. Just trying to think of anything from like graduation, like, can you do it in person? Gibraltar has said no. They're looking at other options, possibly doing something at the Skyway Drive-In Theater where they would record speeches and people could drive in and park and, and watch graduation kind of on video. Huh. Should be an, an interesting way to do it, at least to salvage something, make almost make something unique out of a bad situation. Yeah, they haven't for sure. They haven't decided that, but, um, you know, sports, probably just done for the year. And Gibraltar making that call, they're probably just getting ahead of the state making the call for them, um, which I'm, I'm sure is maybe days or weeks away. Right. So. Yeah, it is a complicated issue. Like even just thinking about it, like taking a step away from it and not knowing all the details, it's like, well, what do you do about students, not even just graduating seniors, but what do you do about students moving on to the next grade? Do you reopen in the summer and have students finish? Do you just pass everybody? Do you look at what their grades were like before and then pass the people who were like... There's there's problems with every one of those potential solutions. So I, I'm curious to see what the final decision will be. Right. And there's no guarantee that everything goes back to normal for next year. So even as schools are trying to catch up and A, they're trying to figure out how to do remote learning as best they can. So all the teachers are doing a new thing. All the parents are doing this new thing. All the kids are doing this new thing. Now you also have to worry about the mental health of everybody involved. And then you're trying to figure out things like graduation. How do we get through this year? That's a, it's a massive scramble. But then 
if you take a step back and and go to a 30,000 foot view, you start to realize, okay, well, nobody seems to see like a, a clear endpoint for this. So can is there a scenario in which we have to continue this next fall? <laughs> what does school year 2020, 2021 look like if we're still not comfortable putting people in mass gatherings? And again, we've said this before, like whether or not the government says, hey, open the schools. Like let's say Tony Evers decided two weeks from now or the Gibraltar school board or somebody else said, we're going to open, we're going to send people back to school in the classrooms. I mean, 20%, 50% of parents just say no, maybe. Like whether or not the government says you have to or says that it's, that it's open, I don't know how many people would be comfortable with it. So right. the same thing next fall, like what, where's our comfort level going to be? Um, some parents might just be desperate to send their kids anywhere but home. But I don't know. Right now, I wouldn't be able to confidently say that a lot of these things could, could happen unless something drastically changes or we figure out a way to do it. Yeah. Well, and on top of that, too, it's like you mentioned like 20, 50 percent of parents might not want to send their kids back. I wonder what the percentage of students who are just aren't reliably able to access their online learning is right now, too. We've talked about this when Gibraltar proposed e-learning for snow days last year. Uh, how many students are actually going to be able to be competitive to, to keep up without reliable internet and without another source of internet like the library right now? Then it's like, well, is is the more pressing concern to solve right now getting students connected so that they can receive remote learning? Like, is that part of this right now? If we stretch into next year, is there is there efforts that need to be taken to make sure that every single student can reliably connect to their educational resources? Well, and I know the school has doled out hotspots for people, so I don't know if that has totally fixed that problem, um, at least in the short term. But And I don't know what the quality of that internet connection might be and how that works when you might have multiple kids in one household trying to use the same one, what kind of bandwidth it has. But yeah, there's all those questions that continue. I mean, we, I'm on the the board of right on door County and they just trying to find internet service in the town of Gibraltar for our organization and our new writing center is, is a difficult proposition. So yeah, there are a lot of like, when I, when I say that like schools have such unique problems and hurdles to overcome, you think about, let's say you take somebody in the hospital that might be like 500 employees, let's say, and or any business that might have 500 employees. Okay, any decision that you make impacts those 500 employees and their families. But when you are like on a, on a school board of Gibraltar where you have 100 or so employees, but five or 600 kids, your decisions are impacting, for each of your employees, is impacting every one of those kids that they're trying to teach and then all those families that go home, like whether you decide, however you decide to run to school has this dramatic impact on people's childcare decisions and their ability to work and so many other aspects that a lot of business owners, you know, like us at the Pulse, we don't, we don't have to consider all those other things that trickle down to the entire community and how everybody lives and, and acts. So it's going to be a really interesting month or so ahead as as schools grapple with the end of this year and then trying to figure out simultaneously plan for what next year looks like. 
Right. Uh, I think we should mention, by the way, there hasn't been a change in positive cases of COVID-19 in Door County as of today so far, as we're recording this at five o'clock. The most recent numbers are still nine positive cases and one death, uh, but there was also the first death in Kiwani County as well. Uh, I believe that was either last night or this morning. Yeah. They said the patient died yesterday. Um, They announced it today. The one interesting thing last night, if if people haven't caught it, uh, Door County Medical Center on their Facebook page hosts a Facebook Live with Public Health Manager Sue Powers and Chief Medical Officer Jim, Dr. Jim Heiss of Door County Medical Center. And that's every Monday at six. And they do a good job of answering a lot of questions, giving some recommendations to people, reinforcing the recommendations. And it's especially interesting to hear it from Dr. Heiss, because, all right, here's a guy who deals with this and who's, who oversees staff who deal with this. What does he do? So he'll he'll give a lot of anecdotes of like, here's what I do. For instance, if you open your mail, like, don't be afraid to open your mail. You don't have to wipe down your packages necessarily, but wash your hands, open them, discard the stuff you don't need, the packaging, and then wash your hands again. And just be conscious to not touch your face. It doesn't mean you get a package and you have to treat it like, nuclear waste and put on your gloves and your mask and everything. Um, right. He's, he said like there's kind of like realistic caution, I guess, is um, maybe what you might term that. Now, granted, those those sessions, they really do a great job. As a reporter, they don't answer all the questions that I would like answered, but it is a great way to get an update. And I'm glad they're doing it, like just to get some of the updates out there and let people see a face of who is who is kind of on the front lines of this and and making some of these decisions and recommendations. I think that right. does matter when you have a crisis of this this magnitude. So, Well, and something reassuring to me as I'm looking at the number of cases and tests, last week we were in a situation where there were 100 tests performed, but only about half of those had actually seen results come back. Now we're in a place where there's been 165 tests performed and 148 negative cases. So there's eight tests that are still pending, which means that the majority, the vast majority of the tests that they've performed have come back, which is is more reassuring to see that we're not waiting on a potential 50 cases that could be positive. Uh, the pending cases are much lower now. So that's, that's something reassuring to see that the, the people who have had symptoms and have been tested, the majority of them have come back negative. Yeah, and there's um, another great point that came out of last night is a, again, maybe it's it's not necessarily the answer everyone would like, but it's at least uh, some reasoning behind it. People, some, many people have asked like, why why can't you tell us where this pa- these patients were and what town they're from? And a lot of that goes to privacy laws. You can't in towns as small as, say, like the Village of Egg Harbor, about 200 people, if if you said this was a, a man in his 50s from the Village of Egg Harbor, that gives you too much information and that because somebody could then track down who that patient is and you would be violating some of their privacy rights when it comes to uh, their medical history and things like that. Right. Um, I have made the case that dividing it, you know, looking at the county as a 70-mile thumb, you could say like, all right, it's a person in Northern Door or a person in Southern Door, or it's a person in the city of Sturgeon Bay. And, you know, my hunch is that you could get, you could do that. And it might be helpful to the community because those are, it's such a a wide swath of area. Just like saying it was in, that there's a case in Door County matters more to locals more than 
saying there's a case in Brown County or a case mm-hmm. in Wisconsin. It makes it hit closer to home. And that is information people want to know. But in any case, they, they have said that the justification and the reason they're not giving that information is because of that, for those privacy violations. So just wanted to put that out there because I know a lot of people continue to ask those questions. Right. That's good. That's good to clarify. Our last bit of news that we wanted to talk about today. So if you remember maybe a month ago at this point, the Quarry RV Park we were talking about maybe every week in the podcast, and that had reached a uh, what we were calling at the time to be a final decision. But of course, we knew that there was the opportunity for appeals to happen. What was it? Did the was it the town had denied them? I'm trying to to segue this. <laughs> yeah, uh, don't worry. There's it was such a confusing process, and it's it's such a long drawn out process that I can understand confusion. So you have it went to the town planning commission. They denied it. And that's kind of advisory. Same with the town board. So after it goes to the town planning commission, it goes to town board. Town board denied it. Again, that's just a recommendation. Then it went to the resource planning commission at the county level. And they ultimately had the decision-making authority and they denied it. So that's where it stood as of early February. Now the 30-day window was coming up where they had an opportunity to file an appeal of that decision. And they filed just in time. So the developers, Mike Parent and Tom Gells, have appealed that decision, and that appeal now goes to the Board of Adjustment, which is just kind of another, it's like a, a they revisit everything that the County Plan Commission already went through. So for me, this might, this might mean another 20 hours of meeting. <laughs> um, well, okay, so here's my first question. How does, how does this whole process look different now during the COVID-19 crisis than it would normally. Uh, how are these meetings being held? How, how does getting things passed or denied, how does that change right now? So I talked to Mariah Good, who heads the planning department for the county, and that's where these appeals get filed. And she said it's unclear exactly how quickly this can move forward and exactly how it will play out because obviously they don't know what, it's gonna, what the ground rules are going to be in a month or two months. And in this case, you have to have proper public notice. And the first place they send an appeal like this is they go back to the town. Not necessarily to go through the whole hearing again, but the town the town might say, nope, we're sticking with our original decision. Or they might say, uh, maybe we'll change our minds, so let's, let's hear this again or review this again. So it could end up going back to the town for a hearing, but it not, wouldn't necessarily have to, but that's just the county's process. And then once it goes to that, now they have to do all the public postings, and I think it's three weeks after that they can have a hearing. So you'd be looking at f- minimum of probably four weeks out to have a, a board of adjustment hearing, maybe significantly longer. I don't know what the my, – my hunch is they wouldn't be meeting in person in four weeks or five weeks. Maybe they'd be able to meet with just the, the board members there and then the public being able to participate via Zoom. I, I'd say that'd be like the kind of a – maybe the best case scenario for actually having some sort of in-person aspect might all be Zoom or whatever kind of meeting software they want to use. For those listening that don't know, Zoom is uh, just a online video, God, what's the easy way to say it? Video meeting software. Yeah, it's like it's like Skype or like FaceTime. I, I want to be the devil's advocate, the 
tech guy here and say that like you're probably hearing about Zoom for the first time. I know that I was when it started to come up. Uh, before you jump in and download Zoom and start jumping into your video conferences, do a little bit of research on it and decide if you really want to go with Zoom or another solution. Uh, because in the same way that Zoom literally just exploded over the past couple of weeks, there's also been a ton of security vulnerabilities and people uh, sharing how their Zoom meetings have been hacked or how people are gaining access to their computers through Zoom. So just do a little bit of research before you jump on to the bandwagon and decide that Zoom is your screen sharing uh, program of choice. <laughs> and so that that's kind of the process, but who knows how that how that meeting will go. If it's done by Zoom, for me, I I would really enjoy that because then I could just cook my dinner while I'm waiting instead of starving during these eight and a half hour meetings. Um, And I'm guessing a lot of other people would like that as well. But I would guess this is going to be a protracted fight. The the appeal is um, they've cited a few different things. One, they've gone back to this is straight zoning. Like it is zoned for the use that they've proposed. So they thought that too much, not enough weight was given to that fact and too much weight was given to many of the objections, sort of the impact to property values, which is at, at best a guess because it hasn't been built yet. Um, and then uh, right. whether it fits into the area and they said like, that's kind of overruled by the fact that it's zoned to be this. So what does it matter necessarily that it fits the other surrounding areas that are zoned differently? So right. they've also, they've uh, secured the services of a lawyer who helped write the conditional use permit changes from what they sent me. So they could see this as a property rights issue and kind of a standard bearing property rights case as it moves forward. Now, the the developers did tell me that they have looked at other uses for the property that they could do with just over-the-counter permits. And when I say over-the-counter, it means they don't have to go through the oversight process. They wouldn't have to go through the conditional use permit. Neighbors wouldn't have a say. They could just pull a permit like me building a house. And if I met the criteria, I could just start building. And they said they are still investigating those options. But since their deadline to appeal the, the original ruling was coming up, they felt they had to get that appeal in just in case they wanted to continue with the original plan, which is what they said is their ideal end game right now is to continue with the plan they originally proposed. Board of Adjustment, uh, you had asked us earlier, like, what, how, what does this look like? They don't actually appeal. They don't really discuss the decision of the planning commission, if the, the resource planning commission. They just rehear the whole case. So mm. they, all, the presentations on both sides will happen all over again if they end up following through all the way with the appeal. My hunch is if that it, if they did win this appeal, there would probably be a legal challenge to follow. Just like in Jacksonport with the campground that the Loretzans proposed south of Jacksonport, that is still hung up in the courts right now in appeals. So even if they, whichever side wins this appeal, I would guess there would be a legal battle in the courts following that. So right. this is... this is not done. <laughs> and and we will continue to talk about it as, as it progresses down the line, uh, much in the same way that we covered it uh, throughout the end of last year. You know, Miles, I, it's interesting that you mentioned being able to use Zoom or FaceTime to call into one of these meetings from home. Is that another one of those uh, COVID-19 related niceties that you're going to try to cling on to once uh, we've recovered from this? Well, I probably not. <laughs> like, I can't. I, I there are open meetings 
questions with it. Um, I, I guess like towns went to the Zoom meetings because that was a way to continue to meet without having a gathering and continue to have public access to the meeting in real time, which is part of the standards you have to meet for open meetings laws. I'd imagine they'd go back to in-person meetings, but right now it's actually kind of nice. I mean, there's a couple of things for me that are, from a job standpoint, yes, this has been an incredibly busy four weeks for me, so really long days, and it's just long days as a reporter. It does not compare at all to long days as a medical worker or a firefighter or, or people who do the real hard stuff in our society. Sure. But it's, you know, it's a lot of long days. The one, one way that actually helps me crank out as much content and do these podcasts and um, write as much as I'm, as I'm able to is because there actually aren't a lot of towns have canceled a lot of their meetings, a lot of their non-essential meetings. So I'm, I'm not necessarily covering parks and properties meetings or um, planning commission meetings. A lot of projects are on hold. So I'm, you're not spending two or three hours in some of these meetings in person or driving to them. So it actually, in a way, it buys me like 10 hours a week <laughs> of, of non-driving, non-meeting time. And then right. a lot of the meetings I do cover, I just chime in on or, or watch them on Zoom and I can be doing other work while, while taking notes and, and keeping an eye on, on that meeting. So it's, uh, I don't, I don't want to say there's pros in any of this, but if there is some sort of pro into like how covering this is possible. That is one one reason. Because if there were still, if this were like a normal thing where this was an ongoing tragedy, but society was still moving forward and you still had to try and keep up with everything else, it would be impossible. <laughs> right. So you're not, a year from now, you're not going to be still doing a FaceTime phone call in with somebody's cell phone and to be there on the meeting. You're going to go back to actually <laughs> seeing them in person. I, I hope I am at least once in a while, right? Well, cause there, there are some things that I'm like, you know what, when this is all over, I, I might still do this. I might still wear a mask. I might try to normalize the mask when I go out and about because <laughs> like, it, it's weird that it took this to turn me into a germaphobe, but like literally <laughs> when I went to the, to the grocery store today, I was like, this is disgusting. His society is disgusting. I have to like wear this mask and I have to wear these gloves because I don't know where anyone's been. And I was never like that before, but now I'm like, ah, I'm just going to keep wearing the mask. Like, cause once you start thinking that way, then it's like, there's no going back. Well, it, there are some things that could come out of this if we are introspective and I would venture to say smart. When you see the impact it's having on reducing pollution and when you see the, the impact on like opening streets up for pedestrians and how great that looks and how much people enjoy it. I, I do hope like one of the reasons we have like this policy inertia in our country and, and all around the world is we go, well, this is the way it is. How are you going to change that? And everyone's, yeah, if everything stopped and you could suddenly wave a wand and create it differently, that'd be great, but that's not realistic. Suddenly all those things are realistic, right? I mean, yeah, we're, people aren't driving that far. We're not traveling. We've, you know, airplanes always boarded from the front and they're like, well, we're not going to sell a first class ticket anyway, so we don't got to show people first class. So let's board from the back, which is the better way to do it anyway. And that's changing. And what if we said, all right, what if we imagine that city street as a public walkway instead of a, a car centric street? Oh, this neighborhood's a lot better this way. Maybe, maybe we have a lot of those kind of realizations. Maybe people see how great it is to not have traffic backed up all the time. And they, we do some things with public transit. I don't know. There's there's a lot of things that, that I can't wait to get on the other side of this for so many reasons. But if you imagine five years from now when so many different studies and, and smart people have looked into this era and said what worked and what didn't, I don't know that we've ever that we've had anything since World War II that provided 
so much fodder for investigations into so many different aspects of our life and society and how they adapted to such a dramatic upheaval. Um, right. We're going to, we, we stand to learn a lot from this. There's actually a great article in the New York Times today about what doctors have learned in the month since this hit New York. Early on, like the standard protocol in certain situations was to put people on ventilators. And once they didn't have the ventilators to put them on, they had to come up with other ways to ration that care. So they started taking people early on, not like the most severe cases, but hey, maybe we can have this person lay in like this kind of pregnancy mattress so that their lungs could expand, like laying face down on this mattress so their lungs could expand a little bit more and take in more oxygen. And they, a lot of different ways of like, maybe don't intubate them right away, which often leads to other complications, but instead do these less invasive things and see if we can't get people back on their own breathing without the ventilator. And if you do that, like a ventilator takes someone to run that ventilator, it takes a lot more intensive nursing care. And by doing that, they've freed up resources in the hospital. Right. And a lot of those things you're not, you don't figure out until you have to. So, yeah, well, and think about all the different innovations as well. I mean, think about all the stories you hear about people using 3D printers right now to manufacture either parts that they don't have or better solutions to problems that we have right now. Think about the ways that companies are are being forced to investigate remote working and and how that is going to expand the possibilities for those companies moving forward. Uh, it seems like a big hurdle to jump into, but now that they've been forced to do that, there's a lot of benefits uh, that they can gleam from it. Uh, think about the different services that we that we find ourselves needing so badly right now, and how are those going to change when we come out of this? I'm talking like healthcare and the internet as a utility, like all of those different things. Hopefully, we use this. Like people have been saying, uh, I can't wait till we get back to normal. Uh, but I've also heard people saying like, normal wasn't working. We need to come out of this better. We need to find a better way forward. And, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity for that to happen. I think that there's a lot of things that can change because of this and we can end up in a better spot at the end of the day. Like it, it, it's hard to say that like, oh, don't, we're going to learn so much and we're going to come out so better when people are dying. But at the same time, it's like trying to stay positive and trying to think about what what good things can we take from this and move forward with it? How do we prevent this from happening again? Well, that and I, I would, I hope people are looking around at their own neighbors. Um, as much as people tend to look up and outward at big corporations and for conveniences and, and the federal government to help you, well, you've seen those two things fail in such dramatic ways. But then if you look around locally, like right now, as the supply chain problems start to rear, rear their heads, I start to look around and I'm, like, I'm really glad we've developed a, a local food marketplace that 15 years ago, we didn't really have this, but now we have four or five different local farms that raise beef and chicken and sell eggs and all these local growers who are doing stuff up here. Then yes, it's not like the mass food that maybe we'd need to totally sustain, but it gives us options that we didn't have here 15 years ago. And the local companies who are adapting to try and help in so many ways, like the one making masks or like FLS banners or Thermotronics or, and so many other local companies stepping up. And it's like, and the restaurant, even the restaurants who have adapted and doing pickup and bringing it to your car and taking all these extra steps to help you out. It's like, if you have a choice next time between the big chain restaurant and your local restaurant, like 
spend your money at the local guy. Remember who helped you out right now. And same thing with the local businesses and corporations, just like send her more of that focus on your neighbors who are going to be there when these kind of things happen. Right. Miles, do you have anything else to add before we wrap up today? <laughs> that should do it. I've talked enough. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Miles, for chatting with me today. And I look forward to chatting with you again tomorrow. Thank you, Andrew. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.